Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up. In the last 10 years, there's been a lot of injuries and deaths caused by these things. There's a growing push in Papua New Guinea to have wire catapult catapults declared illegal. Also, one of the biggest steps forward at this meeting session was France conveying its banned position on deep sea mining. International Seabed Authority meeting wraps up in Jamaica as more countries call for a moratorium or ban on seabed mining. And later on... There's been no plebiscite, no referendum uh, where the people have said that we want U.S. citizenship. We have a go at unpacking the complex issues around American Samoa's unique political status and its conditions. There's a growing push in Papua New Guinea to have wire catapel catapults used to fire barbed spears declared illegal. Last week, the governor of East Sepik province, Alan Bird, spoke of an escalation in the use of the weapon and the deaths and injuries that are resulting. Mr. Bird says in one district in his province during October, there had been 256 attacks and eight deaths, with hundreds traumatized. Don Wiseman spoke with RNZ Pacific's PNG correspondent Scott Mwaide, who says the deadly weapons have become commonplace in recent years. In the last 10 years, uh, and, and I've seen this in the last 10 years, I can account for it, there's been a lot of injuries and deaths, as you said, caused by these things. And they're basically, you know, arrows shot from uh, a Shanghai and arrows that have barbs on them. And it poses uh, various challenges, challenges for police, residents, and uh, uh, it's a big, big burden on trauma units at our major hospitals. And especially in the rural areas when somebody's injured by one of these things, it's really difficult to get them out and get them to the hospital, and a lot of them die on the way. Is this a traditional Papua New Guinean weapon, or is this something that's been imported from Indonesia because Caterpillar is an Indonesian name, isn't it? I believe knowledge of how it, how to make it came up from across the border because a lot of people use it for hunting and it's found its way into communities. Initially, uh, I guess people were using it to uh, hunt and then it, it made its way into, you know, the usual crime that we have in, in our towns and cities and especially in the settlements. So it, it's become this, it's plague communities, you know, it's it's a big plague on communities. Whenever there's a fight, you, you're bound to see one of these things in action. The thing is, I guess, what can you do about it? I know that Alan Bird is talking about changes to the legal code to ensure that anyone just found even carrying one of these things or having made one of these things can be charged. But I don't know whether that's feasible or not. Are there any ideas about how to do anything about this? Well, a few policemen who've actually dealt with these things have come out and said that, you know, there there needs to be tougher penalties and uh, a deterrence put in place so that anybody found in possession of being in possession of the the barbs or, or the weapons itself should be given a tougher penalty. And most recently, the PNG parliament passed legislation that imposes tougher penalties on illegal guns unlicensed weapon. So if you're found to have an unlicensed weapon, you get a, a life sentence for it. And that's to counter the problems that we've we've had uh, in recent years, you know, the illegal automatic weapons that have found their way into the highlands and into other parts of Papua New Guinea. And many people feel that a, a similar measure should be put in place for uh, wire catapults. The 
injuries are horrific and it's really difficult to get the barbs out of a person who's been shot by it. And it's not just young men who are being affected by it. It's domestic violence that escalates into the husband using these things on his wife or his sisters or, or other members of his family. The 27th session of the third meeting of the International Seabed Authority has ended in Jamaica with a growing number of countries voicing their opposition to deep-sea mining. Among the ISA Council's 36 member states, France has called for a ban, while Germany, Spain, Costa Rica, New Zealand, Chile, Panama, Fiji and the Federated States of Micronesia have demanded a precautionary pause or a moratorium. The Pacific Network on Globalization, or PANG, is part of the Pacific Blue Line Collective, who've been campaigning against deep-sea mining since 2012. I caught up with the network's Joey Tao in Jamaica and began by asking him whether there were any surprises at the end of the meeting. Thank you, Corey. One of the biggest steps forward at this meeting, uh, this third meeting of the 27th session, was France conveying its banned position on deep-sea mining uh, before the International Seabed Authority. Uh, that comes as a, um, as a plus to some of the work we've been doing in the Pacific and uh, other international partners who have been campaigning against deep-sea mining. And also Nauru, who has triggered the two-year rule, said it will not be lodging an application before the end of the two-year rule period, which is in July next year. Uh, but again, uh, we hope that not only Nauru, but countries who are sponsoring states. In the Pacific, we have Nauru, we have Tonga, uh, we have Kiribati, uh, and the Cook Islands who are pursuing something within the EEZ. But simply a sponsoring state is one that uh, sponsors the activity of uh, a company, a mining company uh, in these international waters. And is there still a likelihood we will see commercial mining in Nauru's waters next year, despite all of the opposition? Pacific Island states who are pursuing activities in the international waters, in the Claritin Clipitan zone, uh, our appeal to sponsoring states uh, and industries not to rush come July 2023. We need to have firm legislations in place, uh, procedures must be followed properly. Uh, at this point in time, uh, the council is still negotiating regulations uh, and we should not move away from that. But having said that, the ISA seriously needs to consider uh, some of the uh, the positions that, are, uh, that some of these members uh, are coming up with. Either it's been a moratorium, a precautionary pause on deep sea mining, or in France's case, a, a total ban. With the Pacific Blue Line Collective, uh, we really hope that uh, the ISA Council must consider uh, some of these positions that uh, its member states uh, have been submitting. In overall, I think there is more time needed for regulations in place uh, ensure that um, these regulations, first and foremost, uh, protect um, island states, coastal states uh, in general, protects the marine ecosystem, it ensures that there is no damage of uh, the marine life uh, where these activities are ha- happening in international waters. Uh, there is this wider call for precaution uh, in, in absence of science, uh, in absence of scientific data, uh, industry and sponsoring states should not pursue this. 
Also noting this is happening in national waters, uh, notably the Cook Islands who are currently in exploration phase. These are important phases that um, we hope that Cook Island can consider what's happening at the International Seabed Authority. And how are the Pacific Blue Line Collective feeling following the meeting in Jamaica? I mean, for, for, for us in the Pacific, who are being uh, campaigning on this issue, campaigning for a global ban, uh, we see that since 2012, um, there has been um, a growing movement of institutions, organizations, scientific bodies that are really cautioning this rush, uh, calling for a pause, calling for a stop. Uh, we should really understand the deep sea before uh, any exploitation takes place. Um, and at the political level, there is a growing, growing momentum between Pacific, not only Pacific Island leaders um, and think tanks, but there globally, um, you have countries who are calling for a, for some stop, for some pause before uh, any exploitation takes place. And in the instance you've had, we have countries like uh, Fiji, Samoa, Federated States of Micronesia, and Palau who have. Um, who have a moratorium position. Um, then you have New Zealand who issued a precautionary uh, moratorium and recently just France uh, who announced a ban. So there is a growing momentum among, at the political level uh, and we appeal to uh, more member states, more member states of the ISA to call for a halt, call for a pause. Nothing should not proceed until and unless we really understand what impact the deep sea mining will have on uh, the marine ecosystem, uh, our marine life, it, our islands, and, and our ocean at large. Over to the UN's climate change summit in Egypt, COP27, the Pacific's call for urgent action is becoming louder with the second week of negotiations underway. RNZ Pacific spoke to the Commonwealth Secretary-General, Patricia Scotland, who warns that the cost of inaction is simply too high for developed nations to continue to plead ignorance. Ms Scotland calls on countries to make real commitments as the Pacific and small island states cannot bear the brunt of this existential threat any longer. RNZ Pacific reporter Rachel Nath interviewed Ms Scotland and began by asking her what victories were the Pacific seeing in negotiation rooms at the climate talks so far. Well, the most important thing, I suppose, is for the first time ever, loss and damage is actually on the agenda. And we're really pleased to see countries like New Zealand stepping up and making commitments on loss and damage. But everybody would like to see a clear framework on which this loss and damage is going to be responded to. Now, currently, the COP27 negotiations, as I know you're aware, are challenging, particularly on the issue of finance generally. But we are hopeful that the cost of inaction is basically just too high. The annual economic losses due to the disasters in the Pacific small island developing states amounts to about 1.075 billion US dollars on nearly 5% of the combined GDP for the Pacific SIDS. And with climate-related disasters killing on average 115 people per day in the world and causing $202 million in losses every day, 
this is just not a sustainable situation. And you know what's happened in the Pacific. You know, Vanuatu had cyclones, Pam in 2015 and Harold in 2020. Tonga had cyclone Winston in 2016, Gita in 2018 and Harold in 2020. So this constant battering is something that people just can't bear anymore. And they know that this existential threat that they face is absolutely real. There's millions losing their lives and livelihoods from the impact of climate change. But you know, what's been brilliant is the people from the Pacific are fighting and we must too. Given Commonwealth is made up of small states and almost half are, it's, how is Commonwealth dealing with the issue of climate finance and loss and damage? Well, firstly, you'll be aware that at the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali, the heads made a commitment. They put loss and damage on the agenda. If you look at paragraph 53 of our communique, and they said very clearly that this was something that has to be faced. You'll know that we're urging countries to come together to close the gaps in negotiations and deliver inclusive, just and equitable outcomes. And one of those equitable outcomes must be on mobilizing the 100 billion annually to support climate action in developing countries. Now, you'll be aware that that 100 billion has been on the table as an aspirational target since 2009. And here we are, 2022, and we still haven't delivered on that annually. But we know that this is just a drop in the ocean, because to deliver on the Paris Agreement, we need $4 trillion each year. And to date, global climate finance flows only amounts to about $630 billion annually. That's only one-sixth of what is required. So we really need more. And we have in the Commonwealth got a fantastic tool because finance is now being made accessible by the Commonwealth Climate Finance Access Hub, which has supported capacity constrained small and vulnerable countries of the Commonwealth to secure at least $56 million in climate finance. And we have about 800 and $50 million in the pipeline. And in the Pacific, we have advisors deployed in Tonga, Fiji, the Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu, um, who have mobilized around $5 million of, for climate action in the region. And we're hoping, if we get a bit more money, that we will be able to place climate finance advisors in each of the countries who are asking for them. And we also have uh, doing, uh, an opportunity to place a climate finance advisor for the region in the PIF. And this will help, we hope, to deliver on the finance that our small and developing and other states really need if they're going to meet the adaptation and mitigation uh, expectations of their countries, but also we've got to look at the real loss which is being occasioned by these climate disasters. All the issues that are 
existing and that has been part of negotiations all of last week and going to be part of negotiations this week. Do you think that that is shaping up to feature in preparation for the Commonwealth heads of uh, government meeting in Nixie and Samoa? These are, these issues are pivotally important. I'm really proud that the Commonwealth heads of government meeting is going to come from Africa and go to the Pacific. Um, you know, one of the things that's heartbreaking is the Pacific are the big blue ocean states. And the importance of the ocean is extraordinary in the Pacific. Yet look at the ocean funding. It's not reflected in the funding. The SDG 14, which is on the ocean, is the least funded of the SDGs. That's less than 1% of all development finance and philanthropic funding for the SDGs goes towards ocean projects. And less than 2% of official development assistance, that's ODA, supports the ocean economy. So what we're hoping is at COP27, um, the Commonwealth will be really able to push that ocean agenda. And we're helping. One of the things we've just announced is uh, it's the first call for proposals under the newly established Commonwealth Blue Charter Project Incubator. Now, this is really going to be an opportunity to give a new technical support for governments to support projects that promote ocean protection and development whilst tracking and tackling uh, climate change. And this includes small grants worth between £5,000 sterling and £50,000 sterling, targeting a range of activities. And I'd really encourage all our member countries to apply for this uh, incubator. There's a lot for us to do in preparing for um, Chogham in 2024. We're so honoured and delighted that Samoa will be hosting the next biannual meeting. And it will be the first time a Pacific small island nation will have had this important meeting on their shores. And I think it's really an opportunity to bring the concerns of small states to the forefront, including climate change and biodiversity. So it will be a fantastic moment for the rest of the Commonwealth to get a little bit of that Pacific magic. Last month, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to review federal laws that bar citizenship rights to American Samoans, including the right to vote in presidential elections. The review was the result of a petition brought by Utah-based American Samoan John Fitisemanu, who says the laws are discriminatory. It's a debate that has provoked outrage from much of the American public, as American Samoa is noted for having the highest rate of military enlistment of any U.S. state or territory. However, American Samoa's government is firmly opposed to the petition. To understand why RNZ Pacific's Finao Funua spoke with Tapau Dan Anga, the director of the American Samoa Government Office of Political Status, Constitutional Review and Federal Relations. In terms of the citizenship and voting, equal voting rights issue, I'm assuming that the consensus, well, I've heard that the consensus in American Samoa is to have equal voting rights. And Okay, so I, I don't know where you heard this. I guess it depends on who you talk to and, and what you read. 
There has been no plebiscite, no referendum uh, where the people have said that we want U.S. citizenship. And the latest ruling by the United States Supreme Court uh, did not uh, allow the federal courts to uh, make a decision by judicial fiat, basically forcing U.S. citizenship on the people of American Samoa. So that, uh, that, that's gone all the way to the Supreme Court, and they said no, uh, because all other U.S. territories and the Native Americans were given U.S. citizenship by an act of Congress, uh, not by a decision of the federal court system. And so the, those are a few pieces in, in the legal process of determining whether people who are born in American Samoa autom- automatically become U.S. citizens. Uh, if you know, you might wonder, why do the people in American Samoa, why aren't they clamoring for U.S. citizenship? Millions of people around the world are seeking access to the United States. Thousands and thousands are trying to apply for U.S. citizenship. What is it about the people of American Samoa that, that uh, where they, they don't have that same? For one, you can. Uh, we're born U.S. nationals. If you're born in American Samoa, your status is as a U.S. national. And if you want to apply for U.S. citizenship, the, that pathway is open to us. But as far as an automatic uh, citizenship by birth, that is not something we're fighting for. And one of the main reasons, because we, we place a high value in our relationship with the United States. I mean, it's a relationship that's 122 years old. And, you know, not only because of uh, financial benefits, but we're in the def- under the defense umbrella. When in the case of natural emergencies, hurricanes, the U.S. is there to help us. But there's something else that's equally important to us, you know, equally important and deep in the hearts and souls of the people of American Samoa is the desire to protect Samoan lands, culture, and language and our way of life. If you look at the history of the United States, there's been a, a, a tragic, tragic ending to many of the Native peoples. It's not the end, but if you look, the, the difference between the democratic principle and the historical reality is a very unfortunate, tragic, and unjust one. When you look at, for example, the Native peoples in the continental U.S., you can say the same thing about the Native Hawaiians, who have come a long ways but who are still struggling. You can say the same thing about the Tomoru and Guam. And yet all of us are loyal and all of us are part of the United States. As, as you know, the intersection between culture and capitalism is a very challenging one. If you ask the people of America and Samoa, the native people, to weigh this out, which is more important? you want automatic U.S. citizenship or do you want to continue the protections that we have? I can safely say confidently that they would, they would choose the latter. Right now, Samoa or Western Samoa, is, they're celebrating their 60th independence and they had a, a very bad experience as a colony of New Zealand and Germany. American Samoa didn't really have that negative experience. Why is American Samoa, um, where does this loyalty to the United States uh, come from? You're asking uh, a million dollar question. Uh, <clears throat> but yes, you know, there are two major events that happened in Samoa that basically unforgivable when the uh, Influenza epidemic, I think it was one out of nine people died. Uh, the other one was the assassination of, of traditional leaders on the streets of Appeal. We can all be proud that they sought independence, and we are proud that 
Samoa as an independent country. Now I would say to you that we are also proud of our political relationship with the U.S. because we've also been allowed the degree of autonomy that has allowed us to maintain ownership of our land. It's allowed us to practice our culture free. Our language still survives. We're teaching it to our young people. We're teaching it in the schools. And uh, so I would say to you, we're also proud of that. Is there like this slight, uh, what would I say in your voice? What are you looking for when you ask me a question like that? Um, uh, are we a lesser people because we're not an independent country? And so I attend these meetings in the United Nations, and uh, I, I see, you know, the, that point of view as well, uh, the effort to decolonize uh, what they call non-self-governing territories like American Samoa. But uh, I'd like to share with you a quote from a high chief, Tuyasopo from Batia. This is many years ago, uh, after Hurricane Ofa helped hit us, devastated. You know, where was the United Nations? Only one year later, Hurricane Val hit American Samoa. Where was the United Nations? No, it was the U.S. that was here to help us. And so we have thrown our lot with the United States of America. It's not a perfect relationship. We feel for the, the struggles of Native peoples, and we feel for the quest for racial equality by people of color, because in the U.S., we're also people of color. So we know very well the, the struggles for equality that happened in the U.S. We are, there are more Samoans living in the U.S. than Samoans live in American Samoa. And so when you ask me where does that loyalty come from, it comes from that, my friend, you know. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. If you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and looking you for a lot next time more.